Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about four things I know or types of knowledge. to make an argument today that there are four different types of knowledge, four different ways of knowing things. And I'm going to hit it from a couple of different angles. First, I'm going to share it the way I shared it in church. And then I'm going to share it the way I've shared it elsewhere in my writings. Under the heading of forms of knowledge, I've shared about this both in small groups and even in a small congregational setting in this way. The forms of knowledge include empiricism. I know it because I saw it heard it, smelled it, touched it, etc. And the scripture example I give for this is King David in Psalm 8. O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, the things that we see in creation. Radiocination. I know it by reason. I know by reason, for example, that I didn't create myself and that my parents didn't create themselves. In this, I refer to St. Anselm. God's existence is necessary for my existence. Another form of knowledge would be intuition. I know who I am, and I know that I exist. Uh, Using Rene Descartes in his Discourse on Method, the idea I think, therefore I am. Intuition. And finally, controversially perhaps as a type of knowledge, faith. I refer here to a Walter Scott, a relatively unknown professor of philosophy, with the idea that I know who God is and that he exists, and I know this through faith. In other words, faith functions as an intuitive knowledge of God. Walter Scott suggests that the key to our vague notions of right and wrong are truly questions of truth and virtue working together. As human beings, a great many of us consider our life's work to be a quest for truth, truth with a capital T. Not just philosophers, but many journalists, politicians, and lawyers certainly fall into the same pit, for want of a better word. The false assumption that most of them make is that truth is somehow distant or elusive. It's concealed. Their truth must be tracked down, captured, and unveiled. Scott referred to something different. He believed that truth was, in fact, wandering around us all the time. His view of truth was a paradox of ubiquity and invisibility. The philosopher insists that making so-called right decisions depends upon the proper use of knowledge to ascertain our options, and then to employ that knowledge effectively. Truth was a full understanding of what can be known, and virtue is the appropriate use of that knowledge. This brings us to two questions. By what means do we learn, and how can we use our knowledge to solve our problems? Well, I would suggest, as Greg, that humans learn through four methods, empiricism, radiocination, intuition, and faith. Empiricism is the most basic. I know it because I saw it. Empirical knowledge is a product of observation. I saw Conan eat the red berry, then fall over dead. Therefore, I know the red berry to be poisonous. Radiocination is simply the exercise of reason. I know it because it makes sense, or it calculates. Radiocination is credited most often for separating man from other animals. This red berry comes from the same kind of tree as the berry that killed Conan. Therefore, I surmise this berry also must be poisonous. Intuition is the introspective knowledge of the self. I think, therefore I am. 
intuition permits the higher forms of thought because it opens the mind to a dialogue with self. The voice telling me that these red berries are dangerous is not the voice of a stranger or of God, but myself. This is me saying these things. This is my voice. Faith is the intuitive knowledge of God. God's existence is necessary for my existence. At the same time, we recognize our own voice. We also recognize that the voice predates our ability to create. Our self stems from a larger, more necessary state of being. Not only did I not plant the tree that grew the berry that killed Conan, I also did not plant myself. As I prove my existence to the satisfaction of myself, I thereby prove the existence of God. Now, human beings employ the methods of learning differently. We are likewise individually unique. Once knowledge is gathered, it can be applied through two main options, deontology and teleology. Deontology is a means approach. We take action out of a sense of duty to do what is right. I warn everyone in the tribe about the berry that killed Conan because it is the right thing to do if I value living in a society. Teleology is an ends approach. We take action designed to produce a proper and desirable result. I warn everyone in the tribe about the berry that killed Conan because I would struggle to survive without the help of others, and they would surely die if they ate that same berry. In each case, I'm describing a truth about a poisonous berry, and in each case, the action being taken by the individual is exactly the same, but one is being driven by a deontological purpose, a sense of duty to do what's right, a sense of belief in something and trying to remain in fidelity with that belief. And the other person is acting strictly in the sense of what's going to produce the best result, what's going to protect him by doing what's going to be in it for him. Now, as I was you know, learning these concepts and discussing these concepts many, many years ago, um, Scott did not make any value judgments for me about the combinations. Um, from his perspective, all four methods of learning will lead to truth, and there is virtue in both deontology and teleology. And even in the area of faith, which was one of the things that made him very different from any of the other uh, professors that I encountered, um, he made no real claims there. He wasn't preaching, in other words. He was simply making some structural points that right and wrong are determined by the interactions of our methods of learning and our options for applying that knowledge, but that we need to come up with some sort of intelligent explanation for how it is that some people, people that we might describe as people of faith, seem to act in a form of knowledge which either has to be lumped together with intuition or for which we have no explanation whatsoever. It is very hard to account for the things described, not just in the New Testament, um, following the time of Jesus in a book like the Acts of the Apostles. It's also hard to account for a lot of things that have happened in the early church and even since then if those things are not driven by faith. And I personally am someone who would lump myself into that category of people who've encountered knowledge that I cannot claim uh, to be my own. I didn't calculate it. I didn't observe it. And I don't think it just came from me either. And for that reason, I identify four types of knowledge. And I think that most of the people who I've encountered who would challenge those those points, who would say that, well, the first two are real, the other two are somehow less real, um, don't have a valid explanation for the kinds of things that we would describe anecdotally. And perhaps can't even answer the very basic question using the only two types of knowledge that they're willing to provide themselves. How do you know you exist?
he is starting to quote Star Wars. And, and he does it in character. Like he quoted Luke Skywalker recently when my uh, SUV broke down in the Target parking lot. Oh, no. And it was such a pain in the rear to fix it. And David had to have it towed because, I mean, he's a pretty good mechanic, but he couldn't fix this problem. Not Aww. in the parking lot. So, But later on our way home, we were just so exhausted. It was like 9 o'clock at night and we're on our way home after him crawling around under this SUV in the parking lot and getting his nice business clothes all oily and everything he still retained the humor enough to turn to me halfway home and say uncle owen this r2 unit has a bad motivator and i said uh, hey what are you trying to push on me you know you just earned your geek cred right there that's by a little quoting bit star wars cred. yeah definitely <laughs> he just laughed what would have been really funny is if while he was working on it you should have been like would it help if i got out and pushed <laughs> <laughs> i could have but at that moment probably not a good idea not a good idea <laughs> I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And when you're not listening to this glorious podcast, we would love to have you listen to ours, the Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Well, that may seem a little more confrontational than you're used to hearing, and I'm, again, not in any way trying to proselytize here. At no point is there going to be an altar call at the end of this inappropriate conversation. But I'll say this. If we start with the assumption that either there is such a thing as intuition or there's not, and if you grant me just a little bit of graciousness to say that if I'm going to give you intuition and if you believe in faith, I'm going to at least let you hold on to that belief for the purpose of this immediate conversation. Perhaps we'll agree to disagree at the end. But for now, if we just kind of draw that dividing line and say, you know what, almost everybody who doesn't have like a mental problem is going to grant the validity of observation and reason. It's where you get over on the other side of it, where you get to intuition and faith that we begin to have problems. And I would even further suggest that most people are going to grant the validity of intuition. And here's why. Using only the types of knowledge that the strictest person in the conversation might use. Using only observation, for example. Prove to me that you exist. And let's not laugh off this question, because in many ways this might be one of the most important questions of human life. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? How do I fit in? Am I real? It's an existentialist question, truthfully. Who am I and do I exist? How can I prove my existence? Well, the naive person would say, well, I'm just going to go to the mirror, look in the mirror, point to the mirror and say, you see, there I am. I exist. Or I don't even need a mirror. I'll just hold up my hand and say, I'm looking at my hand. This is me looking at my hand. It's tautological. It's circular logic. And we would reject that same form of logic if anyone tried to confront us with it in any other aspect of life. As your teacher told you, no doubt, when you were in grammar school, being asked to define a word, you're not allowed to use the root of the word as the definition of the word itself. A gardener is not somebody who works in the garden. The definition of gardener has to be better than that. It has to explain what a garden is, because gardener can't rely on the crutch of what a garden is. The definition has to go beyond it, especially when we're answering questions of who we are. So if you're using observation, you're saying, well, hold on a second. I can't prove I exist by my own observation of myself. I would need to prove my existence through some sort of independent form of observation. 
So for me to be confident that the desk I'm sitting at exists because I can touch it and I can feel it is one thing, but it's tautological, it's circular logic for me to try to touch and feel myself as a means of proving that I exist. And the problem with me relying on a stranger to say, hey, do you see me? Am I here? Do I exist? Is that it's me hearing the stranger tell me that he is seeing it. In other words, there's always going to be an out for some of the Eastern type philosophical mysticism that all life is an illusion, because it's very hard to prove that all life isn't an illusion when anything that you would hold on to as concrete comes from your own perception. And if all life is an illusion, your perception is an illusion. Therefore, the illusion proves the illusion. It's always you know, kind of the caveat that kind of protects some of the assumptions behind some of the more mystical forms of Buddhism and Hinduism. But if we stick with the idea that, well, we're not going to play off on the illusion card, that we really do intend to go through an exercise to prove our existence and to prove it in a way that's mathematically sound. In other words, to hold my own existence to the same standard that we're trying to hold people who claim to believe in God or who claim to believe in ghosts. That independent verification is impossible to come by using just observation because you are always in the mix. You're always going to be the garden polluting the definition of gardener. And there's no way that you can get beyond that because no matter what happens, you're observing it. So let's go over to reason and see if radiocination helps us out here. That maybe we can mathematically calculate the likelihood of our existence being real versus perhaps the unlikelihood of ghosts or perhaps even God being real. This is the number one form you'll see trucked out. When there's discussions about the validity of, of uh, Christian thought versus atheist thought, it's that whole dividing line, and it has the same fundamental flaw in it. The only difference is that this fundamental flaw is consistently denied by most people. Most Christians don't go in this direction in the argument that Christ exists. They would prefer to stick in their own personal experience, which is in some ways the equivalent to observation. It doesn't help me to prove the existence to God to someone else based on what I experienced, because it is, after all, just my experience. That's a problem. But we have the same problem inherent when we're trying to use reason as the driving force behind it, because you take yourself as a mathematical given in the equation that you use. Ultimately, you're going to end up in a place where whatever logic, whatever probability theory you use is going to have you as a given in the formula that ultimately at the end of the day proves you. It's the same problem. And the existentialists know this, this crazy notion that you see on some, in some forms of suicidal existentialism, where the only way you can actually prove your own existence is to end your own existence. And then at that moment of death, realize that, yeah, you really were here. Um, what it fails to tap into is that we don't need to rely just on observation and reason. We have intuition. As Rene Descartes suggests, we've got something inside ourselves that says, hey, you know what, the fact that I can even ask the question of whether I exist on some level proves my existence. It doesn't prove it mathematically. It doesn't prove it um, in a way that I can just you know, use my five senses and point to it. It's sort of a sixth sense kind of a thing. But the fact that the dialogue is taking place where I'm asking the question and I'm giving myself the answer well, that tells you something that you need to know about this entire notion of intuition, that we may view things like uh, deja vu and prescience and all that other sort of stuff as being a lot of paranormal nonsense. But intuition doesn't fall into that same category because intuition is much more foundational than that. This leads us to faith. On the question of faith, I'll suggest this, that if, any of them, if anyone listening has been shaking their head no up to now, through any of the previous elements I've discussed, I would suggest that it's not because there's anything false in them, 
but it's because of a preparation for a disagreement with what's to follow that most of us take for granted the presence of observation, of reason, and of intuition. But you can see where this is building. If I know that I exist because I can have a dialogue with myself and thoughts and ideas that are my own are available to me, I can ask myself the question and give myself the answer. What does it mean when thoughts and observation and direction come from a source that is not me? What does it mean if there is a Holy Spirit living inside us that provides a calling to act to those who believe, and that calling to act does two things? First, it reinforces our faith by answering the question, not only do I exist, but in this case, does God exist? And that that calling to action is very real with actual results that play out according to a set of occurrences which cannot be reasoned to could not have been predicted by observation and were previously unknown to me and therefore not part of the realm of intuition. You really have a problem here if you choose to disagree with that because to truly disagree with it, you either have to invalidate the ideas of all the people who say that without being able to prove them wrong any more than they can prove to you that um, you should have had experiences of faith that you didn't. You either have an experience of faith or you don't. And if you have a faith relationship with God, it's real in a way that, that there is no math. And then there is no set of, of objectively obtained data that can prove otherwise. So a lot of people at this point will just say, well, then I'm going to dismiss it. It can't be scientifically tested and therefore proven. But guess what? Your own existence can't be scientifically tested and therefore proven along the standard that you would apply to faith. To say again, without relying upon intuition, you're not going to be able to successfully logically prove your own existence, and therefore to disprove the existence of God as being quote-unquote untestable also disproves your own existence as being quote-unquote untestable. And yet, my guess is that most people who are eager to disprove the existence of God are equally eager to maintain a steadfast belief in their own existence at the same time. There is another option for the idea that a holy living spirit could be living in people and speaking to them, and that's that, that those people don't truly have a faith in God because they're, I've made an a priori decision that there is no such thing. Therefore, if that person is actually being called to act by something that he genuinely perceives as being other than himself, well, perhaps he's a moron and does not recognize that it is just himself, or perhaps he's schizophrenic. But the problem that I've got with it is that while I'm willing to believe that the world is populated by more than 2 billion morons, um, you know, I've got cynical days just like everyone else. I'm not willing to believe that the world is populated by more than 2 billion schizophrenics. Because if we apply the voices inside your head saying something standard as meaning if you're not hearing it from you, you're hearing it from a voice that's not you, therefore you're schizophrenic, we're probably going to need a new word for schizophrenia. Because the entire realm of theistic religion, and perhaps even a realm of pantheistic religions as well, has inside it this notion that we are hearing things from the voice of God, whether it be the voice of God in nature in the case of a lot of forms of pantheism, or whether it be the voice of God himself from a theistic perspective. We don't view that as the same thing as schizophrenia, and we're, we neither have the appetite nor the resources to put everyone who truly believes that into some sort of you know padded cell with electric shock therapy in their future and, and drugs to manage their potential danger to others because of their delusions. We would still make a distinction between that form of schizophrenia and all other forms of schizophrenia, because what I would describe as the legitimate forms of schizophrenia pose a clear and present danger to that individual patient and others that what we call faith in God does not. So it's a non-starter 
perhaps even a ridiculous argument to make the claim that somebody who is hearing a calling not his own is somehow mentally ill. It just doesn't work because throughout all of recorded history, these mentally ill people have by and large in lots of societies been our leaders. And they've been our leaders because they not only have a strong intuitive knowledge of themselves, they somehow in a lot of cases have a vision of what ought to be done and a direction of how to get there that does not come from ordinary logic and ordinary observation. It's unreasonable in the sense that we would dismiss it if it didn't so often turn out to be true. So I'm going to maintain that there are four types of knowledge, and I'm not going to be particularly patient with people who are interested in discounting half of them. From my perspective, at least three of the four are just absolutely not negotiable. But the problem that you've got if you want to argue that um, faith can't possibly be a knowledge is this. To invalidate the existence of faith by any standard of logic or reason invalidates the existence of intuition as well. And my guess is the you that maintains that you're real is going to rebel against that argument, whether you're honest enough to acknowledge it or not. I've done this once before, and I don't doubt that I'm going to do it again in the future. Our different drummer this week is a fictional character, Joan Girardi, the principal character of the television series Joan of Arcadia. But I'm going to take a roundabout way of introducing why I consider this person to be a different drummer. So please bear with me. In his book, The Case for Faith, Lee Strobel interviewed Catholic theologian Peter Kreeft. Kreeft had a cartoon posted on his office door that day. It was a drawing of two turtles. One of the turtles said to the other, I don't understand how God can see all the pain and suffering in this world and not do anything about it. The other turtle, ducking slightly into his shell, replied, I don't know. I'm afraid he might ask me the same question. I believe the point of that cartoon is that God does something about the pain and suffering in the world by asking us precisely that question. The uncertainty is whether we'll listen, whether we'll do something about it. And this is essentially the theme of one of my favorite television programs. I had an employee when I worked in the record stores who referred to the term jonesing. I didn't know it then, but the apparently it's a drug-related term that properly used, it refers to an intense craving for a particular drug, typically heroin, in the midst of withdrawal symptoms. Now, Todd didn't use the term that way. He used it far more freely. He would say that he was jonesing for a weekend off or that people were jonesing for some warm weather. I think that's particularly true right now where I live or that I was jonesing for some diet Mountain Dew. That term is properly spelled like the last name, J-O-N-E-S, like John Paul Jones, jonesing. But I now tend to use the term in a different way, J-O-A-N, like a woman's first name, like Joan Girardi from the show Joan of Arcadia. You see, I have been guilty of that type of jonesing before. When it first came out, almost a decade ago now, I didn't see it. I only saw it maybe three, four years later. And uh, when it came out on DVD, um, I didn't really even want to watch it at first. My family got it. They watched about five or six, maybe even ten episodes before I jumped on board. And to tell you something about the quality of the show, when I got interested about midway through the first season and suggested that I needed time to catch up, they watched those episodes again with me. They didn't mind the repetition. I missed the show. If you're listening carefully, then you'll really know why the term jonesing applies to me. 
Truth is, in less than five weeks, I watched the entire 23-episode first season on DVD. Twice. Twice in five weeks. And I later would obtain the second season and watch it too. Joan of Arcadia is about a family struggling to life in a new city. The oldest son is in a wheelchair after an alcohol-related traffic accident. And the daughter begins to encounter God face to face. God appears to Joan in many forms. 50 or more actors, in fact, playing various forms of God in the show. Male and female, young and old. And God requests that she take action. Sometimes the requests are overt. Get a job. Join the chess club. But just as often, the requests feel more like advice than chores. The God of this TV show does not sound like a Hallmark card or a Bible tract. Sounds more like a wise uncle or a caring teacher or maybe even a good friend. If this different drummer segment comes off like me saying, go out and watch Joan of Arcadia, well, you know, fair enough. But there's a bigger question there that I really like about what the character Joan encounters in the drama of the show. Joan of Arcadia aired from September 2003 until April 2005. It was nominated for Emmy Awards in its first season for Best Dramatic Series and was always critically acclaimed. The executive producer of the show and perhaps the principal creator was Barbara Hall. Uh, credits also go to Jim Heyman, Stephen Nathan, um, Hart Hansen, Peter Schindler, and Randy Anderson, and Amber Tamblin playing in the principal role as Joan. The question I have, though, is unrelated to release schedules and production credits. It's more like this. How does God work in your life? Does he suggest that you take action in certain ways? And would he have to appear to you bodily to make you listen, as he does to Joan in this TV show? I ask because I believe God does exactly what Joan of Arcadia suggests, just without all the personal appearances and various highly entertaining human forms. Here's how. In an episode called Death Be Not Whatever, set in a modern high school, Joan of Arcadia is uh, trying to be relevant, and whatever at the time was, was a tremendous example of high school terminology. Death Be Not Whatever... God tells Joan that she cannot wait for people to ask for help because often the people who need help the most will not ask, cannot ask, don't have the means to ask. He tells her to pay attention and to look for opportunities. Well, I can tell you that as a Christian, I've gotten that answer to prayers, that precise answer to prayers before. I have a friend who refers to participating in worship as being an act of getting out of your comfort zone, that worship in a living, vibrant church is not solely the ownership of paid staff. It's not just the pastor's job. Well, I'm going to get out of my comfort zone and go someplace that I don't normally like to go in this particular show. And um, I've done so in church before as well. So if you can imagine me pulling out a uh, surrealist short story called Authorial Intent, where I talk about the uh, actually the death of my pseudonym in high school and some of the disturbing experiences that I had in high school and how I tried to deal with it by fictionalizing it as much as possible and wrote more than one story during that high school experience to try to take the things that were really happening and make them manageable by making them not real. Um, I actually pulled out a couple paragraphs of this story and shared it, and I'll share it with you now as well. God has tried to communicate with me several times in my life, but never with total success. I would not hazard to guess why, but the failure is likely due to his lack of sincerity or my lack of honesty. But we've been through that already. Really, I do not go to church to listen to the preacher because the facial expressions make all the difference to me. Obviously, my religious experiences were not in a church, with one exception. 
Once in the chapel of a free will Baptist church, when I was all alone and praying for the health of a friend, Jesus told me to witness. I was confused for weeks because I hadn't seen any crime. Never fear, he told me later. I was shaving and arguing with the Lord. It's okay. All the Old Testament types bickered with God. If I'm anything at all, I'm an Old Testament type. The Lord said he would reveal the crime to me, so I would witness. If I would go to school early that day and listen to the school chorus practice from outside in the courtyard, I could barely hear them from the courtyard. The agnostics politely tell me they think I'm lying. They say, we are not sure. We are still seeking. Jesus told me what the crime was. And for the rest of my life, I have cut myself every time I shave. The crime? Not loving yourself enough to care at all about your neighbors. It seems we have all loved our neighbors exactly as much as we've loved ourselves, explaining suicide and murder within the same easy-to-learn formula. That was the author from Authorial Intent. Let me untwist this semi-autobiographical story. I was praying in a United Methodist Church in my hometown for the health of an acquaintance I barely knew. Rumors were starting to spread that she'd used drugs, and I'd heard these rumors, but I ignored them because I didn't know her. A good friend told me, you know, a few days later, the specific drug was Quaaludes. It was a drug that I'd never learned about in church or in school. I was unfamiliar with it. But that very next week in church, I received a pamphlet in the youth group that specifically warned about the increased usage and dangers of that specific drug. Then, a class schedule change landed me in the role of student assistant for the concert chorus, all these things piling up on each other, one after the other. You can claim you don't know someone if you haven't had a class with that person in five years, in a high school setting. You can claim you have no basis for conversation if the one class you now have with her includes 40 other students and your two desks are separated by a sea of honors English students. But you cannot maintain that claim if you start keeping attendance and grades for the chorus that she helps lead as a first chair alto. So I was praying. I wanted to be open and honest in my relationship with God, and that meant telling him that I was now listening. Enough is enough, I may have said. I'm an Old Testament type. I get the message. What would you have me do about it? Now, I didn't get a tidy, made-for-TV, audible answer. And I didn't see anybody in the form of a janitor or a church organist who was really God incarnate. But I'll tell you what. The rest of my prayers over the next days went something like this. I said, how am I supposed to intervene when I don't even know her? And the answer was, the people who know her use that as an excuse not to intervene. They can't intervene because they do know her. They don't want to jeopardize their relationship. I said, well, I have no facts. I don't even have really any good rumors, truthfully. I can't go accusing anyone with what I know. The answer, who said accuse? It's enough to engage. And I said to that, no doubt sarcastically, engage with what? That's not going to succeed. And the answer that I got was, you don't have to succeed. You only have to try. Now, if you've seen Joan of Arcadia as a TV show, you probably know why I'm jonesing. To me, that television program felt familiar. Now, I'm not going to finish relating this personal history today. I probably told enough already, hopefully enough to put the plot line of that short story into some context. I did speak with this classmate eventually, clumsily, ineptly. I never mentioned drugs. We spoke instead about world literature. 
I don't know if she ever used lewds, and I don't know if she stopped. And if she stopped, I don't think I had any role to play, or at least I don't know that I did. And that's okay. In the Joan of Arcadia episode called Double Dutch, the God character reinforces that idea that you can do what God asks and never see the result, and even fear absolute failure, because faith is about trusting that he knows what he's doing. You don't get to see it. I'd like to refer to one more specific episode from the TV series, at least one. It's one called The Uncertainty Principle, and I'll grant that it's just a little bit heavy-handed. It feels a lot like, let's write a show that has a Columbine, Colorado flavor to it, but it's nevertheless pretty real and pretty powerful. It makes an allusion to the dichotomy of light and dark, and the theme is that even a little bit of light can make a difference in the darkest times. Here's what Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When I take hold of something, when I'm jonesing, so to speak, I like to read the critics. And I think I've talked about this before, but I'll do it again. Here's what I do. If I don't like something that others are just wild about, I try to read all the positive reviews I can. Likewise, when I like something and others don't, shows that get canceled after just two seasons, for example, I try to read all the negative reviews that I can. I try to understand why something doesn't catch on with others the way it does for me. Joan of Arcadia didn't have the TV ratings to force patience from CBS. The ratings were good, very good at first, but the show seemed to split viewers. Most of the reviews I read either loved it or hated it. There was not much in between. That's odd. It isn't a perfect show. So there are legitimate things for Joan lovers to criticize. The police chief, for example, spends almost no time in staff meetings, but he keeps showing up at crime scenes. It's convenient to drive the plot, I suppose. On the other side, surely Joan haters would have to acknowledge that the show succeeds in avoiding preachiness. There's almost no mention of Jesus at all. It's that point of criticism that struck me most. Many people who dismissed the TV show spoke out as Christians who didn't like the ecumenical tone. They are correct to note that there's only very little direct reference to Jesus, mainly through the mother's relationship with the Catholic priest and later a nun. I'd say that evangelism is ultimately about shining what little light we've been given so that those in darkness will find their way to the light of the world. In other words, putting Jesus within the context of Joan of Arcadia is not necessarily the job of television scriptwriters. As the church, it's the job of the believers. It's ironic to me that a show that has something like 50 episodes over the course of two seasons, almost 50 episodes, and therefore has enough of a run to be legitimately syndicated, has not appeared anywhere in syndication, including on TV networks like PAX. I think I'm on to something here by suggesting that a lot of the people who were detractors of Joan of Arcadia as a show were Christian detractors, and they were detractors precisely because the show was not the kind of in-your-face evangelicalism that I personally tend to reject. In part because of that, because of the delicate balance that the show tried to, to walk between telling a legitimately great piece of TV drama, doing so with a spiritual undercurrent, having God show up as a character for crying out loud, and doing so in a way that would only be off-putting if you were looking to be put off. I'm willing to cite Joan of Arcadia as a different drummer. In a lot of ways, it calls to mind to me, it dramatizes in a very visual way, 
that distance between you knowing what you think and what you want and what you believe about yourself and suddenly having some other voice there in play saying, I've got a bigger vision and you're a part of it. Joan of Arcadia, in that respect, is our different drummer. Yes, I recall shaving, literally shaving and arguing with the Lord in 1982 about how to accomplish what I believe was his task. I went to school early that day, and I did listen to the concert chorus practice from outside in the courtyard. I could hear them singing, but I couldn't make out any of the words. There was no way I could make out any of the voices, and if somebody was doing a solo, I wouldn't have been able to hear anything at all. But I knew it was them. I didn't have any doubt at that point about whether my prayers were being answered. Like the music of the chorus wafting through that open window, I couldn't see their faces or make out their voices, but I knew it was them. God didn't appear to me as a custodian, and nothing including his voice was clear, but I knew it was him. And for all the Christian critics of Joan of Arcadia, the God who answered my questions is the God that I asked, Jesus Christ. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and comments are enabled at the Podbean website, http colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. Thanks for listening.